Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. And I'm excited to be continuing our series, Seizing the 167, following Jesus every hour of the week as we look to Jesus, our rabbi, as to how to best do this, how to follow God, and not just for us to kind of white-knuckle it and seize it on our own, but kind of like what Chris was saying, to recognize where God's already at work within the 168 hours of the week, and then the 167 beyond the one hour that we kind of prioritize for him here. Um, so to quickly catch you up to speed, uh, you can listen to our podcast, uh, which the Well Binbrook, you can search for there. But um, pretty much what's happened in the first two chapters so far is that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has come back from the dead. His, he is alive, and he meets with the disciples, and he, and he meets with several other hundred witnesses throughout this 40-day period, and then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the power of God, the, the Holy Spirit, to come upon them. And then this is the day we know as Pentecost, where the wind busts into the upper room and the fire comes down upon them, essentially representing that God's presence now is coming upon each person there. So what happens then is then they begin speaking in other languages. All these other religious, devout Jewish people are in Jerusalem for another festival, and they witness what's going on, and they figure these people must be drunk. So Peter stands up to preach it and gives the first Christian sermon, so to speak, and he's saying, we're not drunk. This is evidence of a new work that God is doing in and through us. And the best part of it is that your greatest threat that you guys have used against us, that you guys have held over us, is violence and, and power and control and, and the boot to the neck. That's done with because Jesus, who you murdered, who you killed, who you crucified, put on a cross, is actually alive. So the power that you thought you had is now gone. Jesus is alive. So tonight, we're going to be finishing up the second chapter of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there now with me. It will be on the screen behind me as well in the NLT translation. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to put one in your hands and, and get one there for you. But uh, you can also use the Bible app and uh, have that on you at all times, um, which just quick kind of... Uh, Shout out for the Bible app. We have our phones on, with, on us all the time. And when I was a youth pastor, my heart was to actually show our youth how to use the Bible and how to kind of navigate the app because they don't always have a physical Bible on them. Or if they do at home, it's pretty dusty. But their phone is brand spanking new, usually shiny, the latest edition. Uh, so let's learn how to use technology. It's still the, the living word of God. But uh, jump in with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 36. So this is the very end of Peter's message as he's been preaching it to the Jewish people. And he says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. So he's laying it on pretty thick. He's saying, you guys are corrupt, wicked nation, um, people, and 
he is actually the Lord and the Messiah. So then in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Now, that seems like a huge number, and it is. It's phenomenal. But quick note here, a couple weeks I mentioned that there were probably 100,000 Jewish people that had come into Jerusalem for this festival, and Jerusalem was probably already a population of around 100,000. So we're talking about a city that's packed with about 200,000 people right now. So 3,000, while it's amazing, there's still a lot of people who are opposed to the message that Peter's preaching. So verse 42 goes on and says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So first of all, this is a disruptive message. They're here practicing a, a very different Jewish, Jewish festival, the festival of tabernacles, the festival of weeks. And Peter stands up and says, God is doing something new. And this is the way God often works. Um, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm kind of headed one direction and never going to church plant, boom, here I am. Uh, never going to do this, boom. He comes in at the last minute and kind of course corrects. And that's kind of how it is throughout Scripture, too. You have even Jesus entering the scene through Mary, and suddenly Mary finds out she's going to be pregnant and have a baby, and Joseph, his whole story gets disrupted. And, and God often works through disruption. But what I love is that as this whole thing is being disrupted, the Jews then ask, what do we do? And they've been asking some great questions all along, because they first start off by saying, how can this be when they start seeing these languages being spoken? Then they ask, what can this mean? They're really trying to get their heads around it. And then they ask, well, in light of all this, what should we do? And it's a great question. And what we hear within this question is a living and active God who's at work transforming hearts and who is about to change their lives. He's not a God who's going to be relegated to Israel's past. But rather, he's a God who's revealing his divine faithfulness to the ancient promises right here and right now. Which leads us to this whole idea of course correction. 
Now, I wasn't sure if I should title this course correction or rescue plan, so I kind of just titled it both. And I think it's a bit of a both and here. And let me explain. It's one thing to discover when you're driving down the wrong road or if you're headed the wrong direction. I know Amanda recently was going to visit Chelsea at the hospital, and when I looked up her GPS to see where she was, she was at the Juravinsky, but Chelsea was in the general. And I'm like, oh no. I called her and she's like, sorry, I can't talk. I'm lost right now. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm calling you. And I know for myself, I've had a few experiences that have been scary where I've gone the wrong way down a one-way street. I don't know if you've had that before. One time I was on a motorbike, which at least was easier to maneuver. But I was driving down this street, and I'm like, man, four lanes all to myself? And then I start seeing headlights coming at me. I'm like, ah! So quickly pull over. But although your pride kind of takes a hit with the course correction, it's pretty easy to kind of maneuver your way around, pull into a driveway, back up, and then be on the right way. But have you ever experienced sliding down a steep slope out of control and at a speed where you just can't stop and then you see a cliff coming right for you? Here's a picture of me back in January 2008. I had gone out to Trinity Western to do my studies and Amanda had flown off to Albania for a semester of Bible studies in Albania. I decided to join the outdoor club to, to kind of pass the time, keep myself busy. And we decided to go snowshoeing up Cypress Mountain. I had never been to Cypress Mountain before, and I thought, hey, this sounds great. So we hiked up to the top. We dug out this little square, and then we had Tim Tam Slams. I'd never heard of them until I got out there. If you haven't, I'll definitely have to, to teach you what they are. It's pretty much just chocolatey goodness. And, mm, but that's beyond the scope of where I'm going. But at the end, I asked, how are we going to get down? And they said, well, either you can use a shovel that we use to dig, and you can sit on that and ride down, or we brought garbage bags, and you can just put that around you and slide down. And I thought, awesome. So they said, just be careful, though, of the cliffs. So of course, I'm following everyone else, and then I hear everyone screaming that a cliff's coming. And I see, like, you can usually see the snow glistening in the, in the nighttime off the moon, and, and I just see this black abyss. And I'm freaking out, and I'm digging in my elbows and trying to grab anything. And right when I got maybe four or five feet away, I finally came to a stop. And I was like, oh, yes. But another girl who was actually from Dundas came and just, boom, knocked me right off this cliff. I had no idea where I was going. She was coming with me. Luckily, there was a switchback, and we went down about maybe 12, 20 feet at most and just landed on the path in snow. But my heart was racing. I'm like, ah! It was terrifying. And the reason I go here is because it's one thing to do a course correction, but what Jesus has actually been telling the Jewish people and the Israelites all along is that you're actually headed for a cliff. They had opportunity upon opportunity to make that course correction, but he's saying, guys, the way you're going, the wickedness and the evil and the corruption, the oppression, you're headed for a cliff and you need a rescuer. You need someone who has their footing, who's able to, to grab a hold of you and pull you back the other way. And sometimes it's not simply enough to do it yourself. So even though Peter's telling them, save yourself, from the way you're going, it's kind of this both and because 
there's this point where you need to reach out and accept help. And there's this point where the helper has to be there. And Jesus himself is our rescuer. You see, throughout Luke, we have this kind of two-part series here, Luke and Acts, both written by the same author. Jesus had been giving them warnings, saying, you're heading for a cliff. He declares that Israel's bought into a way of life that's completely opposite of what God wants. A way which ignored the poor, embraces violence, denies God's call to to his people to become the light of the world. And in Luke 13, verse 5, Jesus warns them, if you don't turn back, you are heading for disaster. And then later in Luke 19, he's so heartbroken for the city that when he enters into the city, he begins to weep. But the twist in the plot is that there's a rescue plan in operation. Jesus has taken Israel's identity upon himself. The representative Israelite, Jesus, the Messiah, who sums up his people in himself, he knows It's his calling to go to the place where judgment is about to fall on rebellious Israel and to take that judgment, the one that he had announced coming, to take that upon himself. See, killing Jesus wasn't this isolated act. It was the symptom of the rejection of God's way. It was the culmination of their generation's wickedness and corruption heading for disaster. But now, with Jesus' resurrection, Peter and soon others are unpacking the meaning of the crucifixion, of the cross, for the benefit of the crowd, for the benefit of us. So although they've been heading for disaster, Jesus puts himself in the way. Jesus stands in the way to rescue them, to rescue us to stop us from going over the cliff, from heading to disaster. The message, essentially, that Peter's declaring is be rescued. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord. Be rescued. The way you're going is heading for disaster. So how do we steer toward Jesus? How do we let him catch us and rescue us? Well, simply put, that's where this whole word repent comes from. It's this turning around, this turning back. And like I was saying, as much as it it depends upon us turning around, it's not just turning around to a different path. it's, It's turning around to this new way of life that's found solely in Jesus. The way we do this is by becoming part of the kingdom movement that's identified with Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And we claim that as the center and foundation of life. You need to allow Jesus to grab a hold of you, save you from the consequence of the way you were going. That's forgiveness of sins. You need to allow Jesus to give you no new energy to go in the right way instead. That's the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what's meant by this big church word that's often thrown around, repent. doesn't have to be a scary word. It's simply be rescued, turn around. 
Turn back from the way you were going. Go in the other direction instead. By declaring that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is Lord. And this is where baptism, that Peter points out, plays a crucial role. For the crowd gathered here on Pentecost, listening to Peter's message, this was a very concrete and specific call. He's saying, join the movement and allow the death and resurrection of Jesus to become the badge that you wear, this new sign of your identity. But you know what? People were literally dying over these words, over this statement that Jesus is Lord. They were being thrown to the, the, the animals. They were being drowned. They were being burned at the stake. Why was it such a powerful statement? Because Lord is kairos in Greek. And the Roman Empire already had a kairos. It was Caesar. Caesar was their Lord. You pledged your allegiance to Caesar. So when you made a public stand and said, no, Jesus is Kairos, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is alive, you're pledging your allegiance to someone other than Caesar. You're pledging your allegiance to God. This was tantamount to treason. It's a change of allegiance, and you're leaving this old way of life, the old ruling authorities, and embracing the way of Jesus and submitting to him as Lord. He's the new Kairos. And not only that, but Kairos was the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word, Yahweh. So for these Jewish people who are there who, who knew their scriptures well and most of them wouldn't even say, if not all of them, wouldn't even say the name Yahweh. Because one of the commandments is don't take the Lord God's name in vain. And they were so afraid of saying his name wrong that they wouldn't even say it. But now, Peter's saying, you need to claim that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh and blood. And this is where he's saying, and not just saying it with your lips, but you need to publicly declare it in the act of baptism. This is why it's so important. It's not salvific. It doesn't save you, but it's a public profession and declaration saying Jesus is Lord. And I'd actually never understood baptism in this specific way I always knew that it was symbolic of kind of dying to your old self, being washed clean, and then being brought back to new life. But one commentator I was reading also said, what Peter's doing is in, he's inviting these Jewish people who understood the scriptures well and knew their ancestry and the old exodus, where Jesus saved them from a life of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the waters to this new land of life and freedom. He was actually calling them here to the same thing. He's like, I'm inviting you to be part of this new exodus. Jesus is going to bring you through the waters, lead you out of this life of slavery and sin and, and viciousness and wickedness and evil. He's bringing you through the waters to new life and freedom that's found in Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful image? There's so much that sometimes our translations or just our limited knowledge in the, of the Old Testament, we miss 
And I thought, man, I love seeing this connection because Peter's preaching to a Jewish audience. Jesus' rescue or salvation message isn't just about a future saving. It is that, but it's so much more. It also means that what God has promised for the future has also come forward to meet us in Jesus Christ. Whenever we're in a mess, we need to remember that we are a turn back and be rescued people. We are a repent and be baptized people. This is our right and we can cash in on it at any time. And 3,000 people cashed in on it that day. 3,000 people saw the hope and said, Jesus is Lord. So now Acts shifts from Peter's message to the forming of the community of believers. In other words, the church. It's the initial formation of the church. And talk about small groups. Suddenly it's a small group of 120 people meeting in the upper room, and then you have 3,000, and you just think, oh man, that's a headache. There's so much complexity trying to figure this out. Well, that's going to continue for generations. But there's a new response happening in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through these men and women. So in Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, Peter, or Luke gives us four marks of the church. And he's careful to point out what these marks are. The first is the apostles' teaching, then the common life of those who believe, known as fellowship, then the breaking of bread, and then prayer. And these four marks of the church go together. You can't separate them. You can't focus on one or two or three. You need all four to work together. If you leave one out, there will be damage to the whole thing. Let me explain. So with teaching, where no attention is giving to, given to teaching and to constant lifelong Christian learning, we quickly revert to the worldview around us. And talk about technology and smartphones. Like, our worldview literally is in our pockets now. And we're going on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever new things out there. And, and we're constantly being bombarded by a different worldview that's more often than not opposing Christ. We had an interesting question at our guys' study this past Monday night, and we were talking about obedience and what does obedience look like in culture. And my first thought was kind of the popular vote, kind of the, whatever kind of article or pictures going around Facebook, if there's a million people that's liked it, well, that must be the right thing because a million people have liked it. But this is why it's so important to gather together and to, to teach the word of God and what, what God is saying. Because you know what? Sometimes you think, well, can a million people be wrong? Yeah, absolutely. There's about 200,000 people in Jerusalem. 3,000 people have followed the way of Jesus. So we're talking about 197,000 people who are still kind of like, I'm not sure about this. Yeah, the, the majority is not always right. And this is why we need to come together so that we don't get shaped by a different worldview and kind of tag Jesus on the side. And then this is, leads us right into fellowship and the, the coming together. 
And mainly where people ignore the common life of Christian family, they become isolated, and it's often difficult to sustain a vibrant relationship with Jesus. I know several people who enjoy finding God in wilderness and at the beach and on the mountains and listening to music. And those, those are all good things. You, you can meet with God in those moments, but that's not Christian community. That's not the church. A few weeks ago, I asked the question, are your current patterns creating and sustaining a deeper devotion to Jesus? Most of the time when you ask people who are like, well, I just find God on the mountain skiing by myself, it doesn't take them deeper in their relationship with Jesus. We need fellowship. Which then brings us to the breaking of the bread, the sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, where people no longer regularly share in the breaking of bread which was simply a meal that kind of brought their minds back to the upper room where they met with Jesus. There, when we neglect that, we fail to raise the flag which says Jesus' death and resurrection are the center of everything. And that's one of the reasons why our core group, when we were meeting and praying about public services, we thought we need to have communion every week because this isn't about us, this isn't about the, the latest thing or any one person. This is about Jesus and the person of Jesus. It's important that we prioritize the breaking of bread. And then last but not least, prayer. When people do all these other things but neglect prayer, they're quite simply forgetting that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. Prayer makes no sense whatever unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together. And we're invited to share in that. This is the opportunity where we get to meet with God in, in God's space and, and bring heaven and earth together within our prayer life. Now, for those of us who've grown up in the church, this might sound rather ordinary or humdrum, but imagine a world without these things. Heaven and earth don't come together. We're isolated and alone, separated from each other. We just go with whatever culture says feels good at the time. It seems to me it'd be pretty bleak, pretty dark. But if you lived in that kind of world and then found yourself swept up in this new pattern of teaching, fellowship, bread-breaking, pray prayer, and you begin seeing these new dimensions of reality open up before you, wouldn't that be awesome? Like, all of a sudden, you're trying to comprehend it, but you're just standing there in awe, seeing miracles take place. That's exactly what's happening. In verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. Just standing there amazed. This is how it was at the beginning. And that awe only increased as the power of the, of the Spirit was at work among them. They now had the power to heal and transform people's lives. You've probably heard it said that the kingdom of God is just a distraction from reality, or some people say that God's just a crutch. But let me tell you, the kingdom of God is not a distraction from reality, 
but is the reality. We're stepping into this new life of freedom, joy, peace, hope, and love. We're stepping into a new way of life with a new family. Which brings us to this final point that we are family. Which makes me want to sing the song, but I'm not a good singer. If you were here on Christmas Eve, you'd understand that. (laughs) But have you ever read this part and you kind of are like, ah, wouldn't it be so nice to go back to this? We just sell everything and share everything. Life's good. Maybe if you have a new Tesla, then we could actually share that. And... But this, this part of the text isn't prescriptive. It's, it's not a prescription that we have to follow, but rather it, it sets an example that we also shouldn't be afraid of. It's not this, this idea of like, oh, man, well, now I have to go sell everything and just give it to someone else. Like, that's kind of misreading what's happening here because, in fact, they're not actually selling everything. I know it says that they're selling their possessions and their homes, but they actually aren't selling all of their homes because it still says in verse 46, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. They weren't selling everything, but rather they were stepping into this new way of life, and they were selling kind of the extra properties they possessed, which is actually a highly significant thing for them to do because land meant a lot. There was ancestral ties. It was their heritage. Perhaps it was part of God's promised inheritance that's been passed down over time. So it wasn't just an economic asset that they're giving up. I think that the reason it's pointed out and attention is brought to it here is because it goes beyond that. They're saying, I'm actually stepping into this new way of life, becoming part of a new family. And the beautiful thing within families and behind the impulse of the early church is that as they saw themselves as family and as part of being a family, you lose the mine and theirs. I'm not like, that's my milk, that's, that's my table, that's my chair, that's my bread. No, like, it's ours. I, I'm not taking it from my kids and claiming my identity over that. They had a new way of ordering their life now, and they had a word for this way of ordering their life. And it's a word that we've taken to refer to feelings inside you. But for them, it was about what you do with your possessions when you're part of this big extended family. And the word I'm talking about is agape, is love. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10, Paul says, but we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. For God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. So he's not saying that since you already have warm feelings for one another, I want you to have more warm feelings or warmer feelings for one another. No, he's saying because you already practically care for one another, continue to work and make that more of a reality, taking care of one another. To love more is to keep making it a reality. And now this is the challenge for every generation starting that day as they exploded to over 3,000 followers and right up to today, 
now that our Christian family has millions of followers. The challenge is, what does it look like to love one another well? What does love look like? And this is going to look different for every person, for every church, for every agency, whatever. Whoever seeks to share the good news and the love of Jesus, what's this going to look like today? And I believe it starts with their example of being radically generous. It's often to our surprise that when we become more generous and more open-handed with our possessions, we actually find a new spring in our step. Or, or we find that, man, I didn't know how this was going to happen, but suddenly I have more to be able to share. There's an attractiveness and an energy about a life in which we stop clinging on to everything and we become open-handed, being generous, start sharing it and giving it away and celebrating God's generosity by being generous ourselves. And that attractiveness is one of the things that draws other people in. They don't understand it. And they want to know more. Verse 47 says, They were praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved, those who were being rescued. They were witnessing this generosity. That's how it works. That's how we can be a witness in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. Where the church today finds itself stagnant, unattractive, humdrum, shrinking, it's time for us to reread Acts 2. Get down on our knees and ask, what isn't happening that should be happening? How can I love well? You see, the gospel hasn't changed. God's power hasn't diminished. People still need rescuing, but what are we doing about it? So in just a minute, the worship team is going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a new song, and, and while they do, I'm going to invite you to just take a moment to, to reflect on the words on the screen behind us, to, to sing along with them if you choose, but also to take a moment to respond what God might be speaking to each and every one of us. Are you needing rescue? Do you need a course correction? Do you need to kind of just call out and say, okay, Jesus, I'm about to go off this clip. I need you. Or what about the four marks of the church? Is there an area that you've been neglecting out of those four things that you need to give more attention to? Or do you need to take the next step of baptism? Changing your allegiance, declaring that Jesus is Lord. Or perhaps you simply need the filling of the Holy Spirit to become more loving and more generous. So as the team's leading us in worship, take some time to pray, to listen, to worship. And then I'm going to invite you actually to, to write down what God's saying to you on a connection card. And uh, you can rip it off or put the whole thing in. But if there's a next step that you're needing to take or there's something you need prayer for, write it down. And I'm going to invite you at the same time. We're going to combine the Lord's table, communion, and offering. 
And we've never really done it this way before, but it doesn't have to be during their first song. It can be during their second song or third song. But come up, drop your prayer request or what God's challenging you to do in the, in the offering bucket, along with an offering if you have one tonight. And then take the, the bread and the cup and either eat and drink right here or take it back to your seat. But just remember how much God loves you, how much he cares for you, and how much he's calling for you to be rescued. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering these things. But let me pray. God, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. And God, I just ask that you continue to pour out your spirit upon us and fill us. Father, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us tonight. And as you draw us closer to yourself, show us where we need to take our next step of faith in our relationship with you. God, we don't want our relationship to grow stagnant. We want a vibrant relationship with you. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal your will to us now, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.